On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Climbers, are you a fan of 90s country songwriting and wish it would make a comeback? Or are you a younger songwriter who figures the 90s are kind of good for name-dropping folks in your lyrics, but not really relevant to how you write your songs today? Well, you're both going to be surprised and hopefully encouraged by today's episode featuring hit songwriter and awesome songwriting teacher, Steve Leslie. Johnny, do that thing. Welcome to the time! This is a show dedicated to helping singers, songwriters, and indie artists like you create leverage in the music business because it's all about leverage now. Gone are the days of you getting plucked off your couch, the bong removed from your mouth, and led out to the street uh, of obscurity and then turned into a household name. No, now you have to be a business person. You have to be an entrepreneur, whether you're a songwriter or an artist. You got to have leverage. You got to prove that your art has value. That's why we created this podcast, CLIMB, Creating Leverage in the Music Business, is a fine line between clever and stupid. And that is clever. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a backstory for my good friend and co-host, Mr. Brent Baxter, who's also a hit songwriter with cuts by Alan Jackson, Randy Travis, Lady A, Joe Nichols, and more. He's got top tens in Australia. He's got top tens on Texas radio. He's got number ones in Southern Gospel, knocking on the door of CCN. The man is... A renaissance in its true form. And what I love about Brent is he helps songwriters like you turn pro by revealing how you write like a pro, do business like a pro, and then on a regular, he gives you opportunities to connect with the pros and start creating relationships. You can find Brent very easily at songwritingpro.com. And I would like to introduce you to my co-host, Johnny Dwinell. Johnny owns Daredevil Production. They're helping artists break digitally by identifying new fans through data. Yeah, it's complicated, but thankfully, Johnny is smart. If you're an artist looking to increase your streams, blow up your video views, sell more live show tickets, and get discovered by new fans, TV, and music industry pros, then Daredevil Production can help. Daredevil has worked with multi-platinum artists like Colin Ray, Tracy Lawrence, Ty Herndon, and Andy Griggs, just to name a few. You can find Johnny at DaredevilProduction.com. That is production, singular, no S, and there's no S because there is no other. Johnny D. What's happening, brother? Hey, man, I'm I'm stoked. I'm already, like, feel like flowing, ready to go. We've been talking with our guest today for, like, an hour now already. Yeah. I was like, we should probably hit the red button and capture some of this gold. <laughs> so I'm excited about today and, and diving into songwriting, craft, and all the goodness. Geeking out. Such a cool perspective that he has, for sure, Steve Leslie. So, And this is sort of the idea of this interview here was born from a three-part series that you did that came from Steve's blog. Yeah, he did a massive blog. About the 90s until now, which is about more about the business aspect of how songs are written and then pitched. Mm -hmm. And this is different though, right? Like this is going to be more on the craft and kind of take a look at how we did it in the nineties and how people do it now and all that good stuff. So this will be a little different bite of that apple and thought, well, let's get Steve on to talk about it. Cause he, you'll know that you'll sense the enthusiasm and the knowledge when he comes on here in a second. Yeah. So I'm excited about this one. This will be super helpful. I think for a lot of climbers out there. 
Well, good. You know what? Let's. You just want to get right into it, man. Dude, let's just let's just go. Let's go. I'll intro. Let's just hop right the hell into it. Yeah. Why don't you introduce our boy here, and then let's rock this thing? Because I feel like we're just going to drop a quarter and Steve Leslie and you and I can go for a coffee, and he's <laughs> exactly. and everybody's going to be educated. <laughs> <laughs> he is. Yes, that's right. We'll just come back. All right. Today's guest has had a professional songwriting career spanning more than 30 years with songs recorded by Kenny Rogers, Mark Chestnut, George Strait, Darrell Worley, Rhonda Vincent, Neil McCoy, Ricky Skaggs, Darius Rucker, and more. He's a multiple BMI award winner. He received a Grammy for the title cut to Ricky Skaggs 2004 Best Bluegrass Album of the Year and for Brand New Strings. As a performer, he's been playing guitar and singing on stage since he was like 15. He still performs his, his own music. He's joined by some of the best players in Nashville, presenting How Sweet It Is. Steve Leslie sings James Taylor. I don't know if that's still going on, but it ought to be because he's he can do that. And uh, he's also recorded several of his own CDs. He's an educator. He's taught jazz history at Tallahassee Community College. He's taught songwriting at Belmont University, Middle Tennessee State University, and Berkeley College of Music, and also across the coffee table to me and many of our co-writes. <laughs> and uh, he's got some other cool stuff going on. He is a songwriter at heart and an educator at art. I love this guy. Steve Leslie, welcome to The Climb. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. Hey, thank you guys. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks. Brad. Yeah, and Always. also, he, wait, wait, he was a publisher too, right? I don't think, do you have the publishing company anymore? No, I did not cover that. There's just too much of Steve to cover in one episode. Uh, well, you know, you go in and out of publishing companies when you, if you, you know, after you lose a deal or you walk away from a publishing deal and you might have a song on the radio or something coming out, you go, maybe I should do this myself. And, you know, you set up your little you shop in your basement or you actually go out and get a place and, and you have to make that decision whether you want to be in or out of the that publishing world. A couple of years ago, I came out of a, a pub, of the publishing world in, in a bigger way than I ever have with an independent publishing company that we that we got together. And uh, other things happen like they do. And uh, so I'm not currently in the brick and mortar publishing world, but always publishing my own stuff and helping other people do that too. Yeah, but I think I think the fact that you had a publishing company, the, yeah. the perspective that you have on, uh, you know, we were talking about this before we hit the red button here on the other side of the table. So you're the artist, which I look at, I look at songwriters as artists. I I know it's like not the industry jargon. You're talking about the artist. It's the recording artist. Oh, you're but, right, man. But you know, songwriters are artists. So as the songwriter, but then also as the publisher, and so that perspective is so valuable. Yeah for everybody to understand coming up, like how are you going to add value? How are you going to communicate with these people in a language that they're going to understand and, and be there? For them? Well, actually, it, it, Johnny, it actually makes, it actually makes teaching easier because, you know, one of the first things that I, you know, one of the first things, it, well, like when you're critiquing, you know, helping young song, songwriters out in a critique type situation, when I know Brent's done a whole lot of that and done it really well, it's like, you know, what are you after here? Is this song you're playing for me? Is it a, a commercial attempt is this something that you think should be, could be on the radio sung by another artist? Or are you a songwriter, singer, songwriter yourself wanting to break into it? And this is going to be, you know, you, and this is not necessarily something you would like pitch to, to some other artist, although you would really like if that could happen, right. as everybody says, you know, yeah, if I could get you from somebody else to cut my song, then I could make it. No. 
Susu Studio isn't going to work, pal. Like, you're going to have to sell that on your own. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it could be a number one, but you're going to have to sell that on your own. <laughs> one of the first qualifications is like, is there a, you know, is there an intention behind this song? Because, you know, we are in Nashville and this is the show. Yep. And if you want to be a pro writer and you want to get songs cut by other people, is that your intention when you're, before you play this song for me? You know, and that makes it a lot easier for us to validate our choices when we're critiquing something. And that's what's helped me with this, you know, to teach songwriting mm-hmm. is from the publishing side is where this is was going. When you mentioned that, it's like, is this something that, you know, being a publisher, is this something that I would go, oh, what else you got? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Who are you hearing for this? Well, kind of a lady A thing. Okay. Okay. What else you got? And they play another. Okay, man, that's, hmm. yeah, we were thinking, whoever, and, you know, there's, there's two sides for the most part, and it can cross over. You got the, you got the public writer and you got the private writer, hmm. public writer, the guys that, that I've always wanted to be when I grew up ever since I was 10 or 11 years old, I wanted to be the guys, one of the guys that went into the room and wrote with another writer for writing on assignment or something. Hey, we need a song for, I mean, it goes back to the American songbook of the thirties. Hmm. You know, I grew up knowing that there were those people that went to rooms and took more of an objective approach. Mm-hmm. It wasn't subjective. It wasn't about me. It was like, hey, let's, like we talked about earlier, it's not writing a song, it's solving a song. Yeah. How do you solve this title? And there's nothing more energizing than um, writing on assignment like that. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, we, hey, we need a song for, uh, uh, you know, we need a song for- yeah, The idea of like the Brill Building and, and those kinds of- Oh, yeah. absolutely. And even before that, even yeah. before with, with uh, American Songbook period and stuff where, hey, we need a Fred, we need something in 6-8 for Fred Astaire. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like, awesome. These guys would all of a sudden put on their, now they've got these limitations that they're working within, which are completely liberating. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's what I love about having the question for a young artist or, or writer, what is your intention for mm-hmm. this? Because- you can have intention in this town. If you're in some place outside of Nashville, you can dream, but there, this is a town for intention. Yeah. What is the intention? I want a, a publishing deal. I want to get these songs recorded by other artists. I'm not interested in a songwriter and an artist deal myself. I want a song. I want a publishing deal. Mm-hmm. Well, th- then there's certain things that as a publisher, I will listen for, or as a critique person, I'll, I'll listen for. And as an educator, this is what I will teach you. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to teach you to be creative. I'm going to teach you to write something that is competitive mm-hmm. with uh, in, in the world that you want to be in. And I think that you guys have always come from that same platform as well. Yeah. I always try to tell people when I'm giving feedback, if we're in a, a situation where I can do that, like, okay, what's your goal for this song? You know, give me your goal. Oh, I want to write, I want to get on country radio. Okay, great. Or now I just want to get better. Okay. Well, those can be two different conversations. There's like two overlays. One's like great song, yeah. commercial song. Yeah. There's going to be some overlap, but they will be different conversations. And so that always helps to know what the intention is. Cause like, if you just want to write about your grandma and it's something that's going to make your mama cry, I don't want to waste your time talking about what radio will and won't play. Cause that's wasting your time. Yeah. It's information that's not needed for that specific. Path. Yeah. And you don't, <laughs> and you never want, you, you never want the truth get in the, ever let the truth get in the way of a good song idea. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's like I had some, I had a young writer come in, uh, couple months ago with that. I want to write a song about my grandmother. She died when she was 86. And I go, no, she died when she was 83. Cause it's going to be a hell of a lot easier to rhyme. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she died when she was 83 for heaven's sake, you know? So, right. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get that ear rhyme. That's called artist license. And, and <laughs> happens in the movies, happens in songs. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, and, 
And like, well, we, you know, I tell them too, it's like, don't let the facts get in the way of the truth, right? The emotional truth is what matters. Yeah. She was, she lived around this age and this is how we felt about it. 86, 83. It's, we need the emotional truth. We don't care about the facts that they don't know your grandma. Your mom would be like, what? Well, granny lived till, you know, that's a different conversation, but the rest of us, we don't care. We just want to know how that felt. <laughs> Snopes isn't going to sell you out and cancel you when they <laughs> look up and find out like, you know, when your grandma was buried. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the uh, things that has not uh, getting sort of segueing back to our original intention here, but it's, a lot of things have changed in, in more subtle ways than profound ways, I think, when it comes to writing songs in Nashville from the 90s through the mid-2000s to the current day. But the idea of writing from a objective point of view rather than subjective has something that has not changed, mm-hmm. where writers get in rooms with artists mm-hmm. or by themselves or with just true writers, meaning you, you don't have that sounds like the others aren't good or something right. but that, that that word means we're just writers we're, we're not looking to you know play bridgestone we just want to we just you know we're writers man we want to be left alone this is for someone else to sing and make famous yeah we want to be left alone when we go to kroger yeah right but that that idea of uh more of the objective approach is something that i haven't seen change much you know, for years and years and years. And it's, it's that idea of putting on a mask mm-hmm. of being the character in that song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why great songwriters are, you know, great songwriters are great actors too, because you have to put on that mask. You know, the word personality, persona, mm-hmm. persona means the sound sona, the sound that is coming through the hole in the mask. Ah, goes back to Greek tragedy. Isn't that beautiful? Mm-hmm. Greek tragedy, they'd put on a mask and they would be they would be a character. They're not themselves, they're being a character. And the sound that's coming through the mask, persona, is personality. And so the idea that writers get into rooms and take on the persona of the character that revealed its themselves in that song is something that it hasn't changed. I think that's a big difference between writers... I'm talking about an artist who are writing for their voice. Mm-hmm. And, and, and obviously, if you're co-writing with an artist, you have to find that balance of crafting their voice and their story. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that, that, that's fairly new f- phenomenon, really. You didn't see a whole lot of artists in rooms with us guys back in the day much. Yeah. But uh, and I'll, I'll tell you this, because this blew my mind. I was having this conversation about wearing masks when we're in the rooms, mm-hmm. you know, taking on the persona of a Was this during COVID, that mask? <laughs> no. No, this is, it was right after, actually. I was riding with Wynn Varble, oh. who we all- yeah, oh, yeah. Wynn is awesome. Who we are, you know, die, yeah, yeah, cue the strings. Right. <laughs> and I was riding with Wynn, and we were talking about this idea about how we wear masks as songwriters when we're- trying to be as true to that character that we have discovered in this song. You might be Carrie Underwood one day, you might be uh, Morgan Wallen the next day, but mm-hmm. you've got to, it's method acting, really. You have to get inside that character mm-hmm. to really write the truth. And uh, Wynn said, this was profound. Wynn said, well, that's why I moved about an hour and a half out of town. I said, what do you mean? He said, I used to take that guy home with me. Mm. Uh. He said, because he writes a lot of like sitting at a bar stool. You know, I mean, just way down in that country thing, man. Yeah. And he said, I used to take that guy home with me. And I had a lot of problems at the house because I would still be that guy when I got home. He said, I'm the man. You couldn't take the mask off. Yeah, exactly. 
not unlike actors who marry their co-star in Bora Bora after being with them for three months. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I thought that was so brilliant to know that about yourself. This is, this is something that I can use mm-hmm. to write as true as possible, but I also know that it's something that I need to to take off in order to maybe even have a, a real life, you know? And he said, you know, by the time I got home, he said, I started being dad again. I had to take out the garbage. It was time to pack the kids lunch. It was time. And I thought, yeah, and that is so profound to know that. And I actually looked it up. There's an actual psychological phenomenon called misrepresentation. Mm-hmm. And it's a real, it's a real thing that happens when you're around exciting people, exciting places, and you, you tend to take on mm. the personality of, of the vibe sort of in the room. Yeah. And, uh, and you can take that, oh. especially empathetic people. Yeah, very much empathetic people because that's what writers are very empathetic. Yeah. They take on that. Yeah. But but to know that this doesn't work in the real world. At yeah. least wife don't real- care. Yeah, wife don't care that I put on the mask of a rock star for the last couple hours, <laughs> and now I come home and I'm like trash. I don't take out the trash. <laughs> Big Mad Bill is sweet William now. Yeah. <laughs> Bring me the tall one. She amuses me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> her and bring her to me. Right. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's my favorite line from, uh, oh, what was the, uh, Sam, not the uh, Gladiator. It's my favorite line from Gladiator, man. <laughs> the emperor goes, bring me the tall one. She amuses me. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, anyway, that's a, that's a long roundabout way. But that's a, you know, I mean that that the point, the road that you're going down there is interesting because that is method acting, sure is. Yeah. right? Like where where they're taking on that, and they're the the stories behind the set on like a Daniel Day Lewis, or I know uh, De Niro does that, or what's his face that was the Joker in Yeah Heath Ledger. He Heath Ledger, yeah, I just couldn't. He couldn't take that off. Right. Yeah, like he got so psychologically messed up from being from playing the psychologically messed up character, he couldn't mm-hmm. come out of that. So I, it's I haven't heard it put that way before, Steve. Like it's that's interesting. That number one, that that's what has to happen to a degree in a writing room, and then also to be self aware. That's it. Mm-hmm. That this is a tool that I'm using, but then I have to put the tool down. That's yeah. exactly right. To, to, and, and go back to myself or you'll lose yourself. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing I, I've thought about a lot because I have my uh, personal, you know, I have my moral compass. I have my values, my set of things and how I live, my lifestyle and different stuff. And then oftentimes, you know, it's easy you go into a country writer's room and it's about other things like, well, this is not how I live my life. And how much of it is journalism? How much of it is advocacy? And that sort of stuff going, well, I wouldn't act this way, but this guy would. And I'm just saying, telling what he would say if he were here. And so it's my job to give him the voice. Is that advocating for that? Is it not? You know, there's all that stuff that comes into play too, which is probably a whole different therapy session. I don't know. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful thing to, to be said, honestly. And the older I get, which is probably not unusual with most human beings, but the older I get, the more that becomes important to me as far as like, yeah, we could write about this, but anything that, you know, if this gets cut or whatever, and, mm-hmm. and and it's the message is not the most fruitful thing that I would like to help someone uh, 
and gender in their life. That's become more important for me. And I found out that you can get off of an idea that maybe is not the most healthy onto another idea that is healthier and write a great song too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but that be, uh, that's a good point. I've never really, not really, really sat and thought about that a lot, but the older I get, the more important that is to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's an interesting thing of going, well, there are a lot of people that feel that way. So I can see why that blew up. I don't know if I'd say it, you know, or whatever. And <laughs> sugar daddy issues. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. My <laughs> kids aren't hearing that one anytime soon. <laughs> So I wrote a song with one of Johnny's artists. It's a song that he, that he co-wrote for one of my artists, Steve. Like, it's bonkers. And it's awesome. Like, I am elbow deep in editing the music video for that now. So it's like so top of mind, but it's a great song. But to be able to bring, you know, your skill set and apply it to something, because it's got an edge to it, to be sure, mm-hmm. is to be able to put the mask on mm-hmm. and apply that energy, right? And and to serve that song the way that you did was killer, dude. I mean, it was so good. Yeah. Thank you. I'll blame all them on stuff. <laughs> but so the the concept of the, the kind of looking at the 90s and looking at now, of course, I had Nashville in 2002. So I, the 90s definitely was transformative, informative for me as as a songwriter. That's when I got into it, that Garth Brooks stuff, the all so much great stuff from the 90s. That, that, that put its imprint on me for sure. And uh, we're telling the story before, but, and I've said on the podcast many times, it, this was... I went out with, I uh, went out to have sushi down on Demumbering Hill with a, a publisher, a guy that I knew from uh, publishing, but he was over at a label now. So I'm like, yeah, just follow this relationship up. And so we go and, you know, I buy him sushi and I'd given him a comp of like four or five songs or whatever, just trying to make a fan over there. I was already in the business and had cuts and stuff, or whatever, but he had listened to it. And I'm like, yeah, what do you think about it? He goes, man. And this young guy, he was probably in his mid to late twenties at this point, but he's like, I think you would have been one of the biggest writers in town in the nineties. And I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, dude, it's like 2011 or something. I'm like, this is, uh, thanks. I loved that era. Yeah. I loved that era. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I was like, okay. And we talked about it, you know, you just talking about how songs are presented differently and, and the lyrical point of view and imagery and time frame and different things. And, which led to me, you know, putting my ego on the shelf and going, because I had a buddy in my ear that was like, oh, you don't know what he's talking about. You're a great writer. He's just a kid. He doesn't know. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go do the homework and then we'll see if he knows what he's talking about. And there were some differences in how I was framing some things lyrically versus, you know, that were more 90s based and versus how they're doing it now. And like I did the homework and there's a lot of carryover. But there are some things that I, I tweaked on just how I present my ideas, and which has led me the first time I met Johnny. You know, I'd written this stuff on a, like a coffee mug. I had the Starbucks coffee mug that you could write dry erase on and then cover it with the see-through sleeve. Oh. And that was just the coffee mug I took to the row every day. Yeah, I was high, oh, high rolling. That's, that's what that was. Okay. Yeah, and I, <laughs> so I wrote on that like, write this. Up-tempo, positive, in the moment, me slash you, da-da-da, these kind of notes for myself to, uh, like no three act play no three act play <laughs> that yeah which is in the in the moment thing and anyway so first time i met johnny was outside the studio where i don't know if it's matt or or somebody was cutting some stuff of mine so i go by the studio and johnny's like what the no, it was, uh, was that? another artist uh named jason ashley was cutting oh okay your song yeah and he's like what the heck is on your coffee mug i'm like i'd have been big in the 90s <laughs> <laughs> <Trying to be laughs> big now 
<laughs> Do you have any idea who I could have been? <laughs> in exactly. The but I was in college. Foolish me. Would have been a be a great bumper sticker. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have been something in the 90s. I'm big in the 90s. Yeah. I could have been. <laughs> so I look at this going, okay, you know, we have listeners that are probably a lot like me who are very the 90s were very formative and kind of put that stamp on them as a writer and they wish it'd come back and they want things to be like that. And then you have writers that kind of, well, that how many years ago is that? 30 years ago? Who cares? But what, what have you found? And we'll start getting into that with your research. You have 30. I know. Yeah. It's a big number. I graduated. Thanks a lot for that. Brent. Well, let's put it this way. <laughs> this year was my 30th high school reunion. Oh my God. <laughs> so a little, little, anyway, I graduated when I was eight, by the way. Yeah. But anyway, um, <laughs> ahead of my time. Genius. But you don't have to forsake the '90s, like yeah. What What have you been finding, Steve? On, and we'll just start digging into it and to see where the muse takes us on this, on what you found with the '90s and now. How some of the differences, some of the similarities. Like, that's a terrible opening question, by the way. Very vague. No, it's a great, it's a great question. Well, I've been immersed in it since writing this textbook, you know, for this class that we can, we can plug here. But mm -hmm. this textbook is uh, the working title. And I think it might be the title is The Craft of a, of a Nashville Songwriter. Mm -hmm. How we, we, how we did it in the 90s and how they're still doing it today. Mm -hmm. So when you, and, and so I've had to, uh, you know, I, I, I've not stopped writing with, writers from the nineties and I haven't stopped writing with younger writers and artists today. And so, so this is based on real time, real room, real co-writing evidence as well and, and experience. You know? mm -hmm. But it seems to me, I guess the main thing, and then we can, we can deconstruct it from here. Thing that blew my mind and is so true. Quincy Jones mm -hmm. said something in a, an interview uh, one time, not that I saw on YouTube. He said, rhythm is revolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and he was talking about how he, well, the interviewer was talking about how he has been able to remain valid through all those different periods to go from Frank Sinatra to, to, to the big band thing he did yeah. and then produced Frank Sinatra. And then for heaven's sakes, picks up on Michael Jackson mm -hmm. yeah. and then goes on and on and on and on. And he was, he was still the guy in the middle of all of that producing all of that. And he said, rhythm is revolution. And I see that in the change from, many eras, not only from the 90s to today, but before that in country music specifically, because that's what we're talking about specifically here. Mm -hmm. And it's so true. Those you know, kids, my kids, young adults, whatever you want to call them, young writers, artists these days don't want my, don't want our rhythm. Mm -hmm. They want their own rhythm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And my rhythm, the 90s through the, when we say 90s, really, I, I see it extending through the mid 2000s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That period when it just, and we can talk about, I think, you know, when it kind of changed and maybe the recordings that did maybe where it tipped, but that's not the important thing. It seems like our, that time, the rhythm was conversational. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was a conversational rhythm in the lyric and the melody mostly. You had, you know, sing it like you say it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then with the hip hop influences that have come into country music and every other phenomenon, every other genre, mm -hmm. there's been some rhythmic changes. There's over the bar phrasing. It's not starting, and you know what I mean by that. It's, you know, the phrasing is going over the bar when you expect it to end in some sort of cadence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
and it's over the bar and now you're kind of going whoa where's where's the one in all of this you know yeah. and then this these rapid fire phrases and that's that's so indicative of, of the hip-hop influence mm-hmm. and less of the conversational influence you, you can't you'd be hard-pressed to actually say in a conversational way a Morgan Wallen lyric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I was talking, if I was talking to you like that, I'd be talking like this, and we, but, but, and you know, and it'd be all this rapid fire stuff. It, it wouldn't sound conversational, and and it'd be very misset. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the the emphasis would be on the the wrong part of the wrong, yeah. uh, the, the, the unex the wrong part of the word. The emphasis is on the wrong syllable. Yes. Yeah, yes. like I, I got a I got a silver fox sweet pop sitting on my TikTok. They all want a taste of my honey. Yeah, like, hey, oh, that's exactly right, man. Very good. That, yeah. that kind of a thing. Johnny's daddy was taking him fishing when he was eight years old, right? That's just yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and so the rhythm. I mean, the overall that seems to be the main thing. Rhythm is revolution. When I when I when I heard that. It's so when eloquent, that man. Framed, <laughs> yeah. It's so framed in a. It's framed in a, such a positive way. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's true. They don't want my conversational lyric. I mean, they got their own way of dancing. Yeah, you know, and I, I get that. I get that. And so, and so, um, but they're still telling stories. Mm-hmm. They're still writing from a title. Most of the time, you can tell it when you hear it. Yeah, yep. there's a title involved. Mm-hmm. They're still uh, getting to that title by setup lines mm-hmm. and payoff lines, and maybe the the idea that the chorus, the second time you hear the chorus, has been revisioned. My term, mm-hmm. because now it means something completely different based on the new information from the second verse, even though right. it's the exact same it's words. The same. But you perceive it differently. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Reframed, like reframed. Yeah. Reframed. Absolutely. And, you know, a student of mine said, gosh, when he heard a song like that, he said, man, it's like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Yeah. It's like magic at that point. It's alchemy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, what? The course is exactly the same, but it means something different. How in the world? You know, and so it's based on. How did you pull that off? Yeah. So, how did they pull that out? It's like a joke. It's like a punchline. I'm going to. I'm going to tell you a joke, give you the punchline, and you're going to laugh. And then I'm going to tell you the rest of the joke, give you the same punchline, and you're going to cry or laugh that's harder. Cool. I love that. Yeah. So, huh. yeah. There's a lot of parallels to that. And so that's still a thing. Yeah. I mean, there are probably more similarities than not when it comes to that school of writing and, and the current school of writing. Mm-hmm. Now, back, you know, there was more harmonic things going on. Mm-hmm. 90s, mid 2000s. I mean, when you have writers like Hugh Presswood and Gary Byrne, blah blah blah, Dave Loggins, and let's skip Ewing, mm-hmm. they were some fine musicians. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so you were having some chord changes, some passing chords and modulations and stuff that you don't. That were like you know that was kind of a thing back then. It wasn't unusual. Nowadays, it's rare to get that sort of harmonic emphasis. Although my son. When he introduced me to Morgan Wall, he goes, Dad, what's that chord right there? Everybody's talking. What is that? And so they're kind of bringing back the major seven. It's coming back. <laughs> that uh, seven summers. Yeah, yeah. Those are major seventh chords. And it has that breezy sort of, ooh. Now, so that's, that's making it. a throwback quality to it. Like hearing that, like, oh, that's a little throwback. It's throwback to us, but not to yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it makes it almost sound like. It makes it sound new, but also it's got a vintage stain on it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it almost sounds like more legit because it's got it. They somehow took that and made it 
sound fresh, right? But mm-hmm. it's 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 like it's it's like you're hearing it for the first time, but it still feels familiar. Yeah, so good. Which is where the great songs are. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Create something original that has been done that that sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where the good stuff is. Yeah. You know, it's a great song when you're writing it and you go, this reminds me of a, uh, this kind of has that, uh, um, yeah. I don't yeah. know. Is this a thing? Yeah. Is this already a thing? Is and this- you're tripping out about it and then you're like, nope, we just, <laughs> we just did that. That just happened. Yeah. yeah. So there, I think there are more, I think the actual craft sitting in a room and coming up with a, you know, a song is still title based, idea based and or the, the top line writing thing mm-hmm. where you got somebody that comes in with a groove. Yeah. And there's this implied melody based on the chord changes. And then mm-hmm. and then we're floating around the room trying to find that melody and that place where that that point of contact, I call it, where that hook shows up. Boom. And then either you go to your hook book and go, oh, I got something that works for this or you find it in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's always been a thing, but it seems to be more prevalent now with with the track writing part of the five songwriters in a room thing too, you know, which I think is is cool. Um, but and sort of the pop that that came along with the pop influence yeah. too, I think. To, to sure that did. top line is definitely like a pop kind of. Oh, a- yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I thought Steve, when you're saying you know you had some of those great, very fine musicians, kind of in the the '90s camp, and it's like we had musicians. Now we have producers. <laughs> In the room. Yeah. You know, do kind of doing more tracks and that kind of stuff. And I mean, there's some great musicians that, you know, that I work with, but that, that definitely wasn't the thing nearly as much. What I found out too in, in diving deep, because, you know, this book I wanted, I want to show, and the course, I want to show as many examples of how we did it then and how they're doing it now. Mm-hmm. It's not a book on 90s songwriting. It's a book on how these principles, how we handed them the baton, yeah. and how both are really relevant. Mm-hmm. And they certainly have built on one another. And that has to do with, I think, rhythmically more than anything is kind of the main the main thing here. Um, title placement, you know, all of that is like, you can still hear the craft. Oh, here's what I, was, I got off. I took a, a wrong course. Here's what I meant. I forgot. No, it's like I've had to listen to a lot of country. I had, I've had, had, have had to listen to a lot of country songs, brand new country songs, mm-hmm. in order to find a bit. like that fast car, fast car that one new one by Luke Collins. Oh, oh well, yeah. Actually, I was actually glad he did it the way he did it. But oh, I am too. I like, I like that song. Just yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've had to, I've had to take a deeper dive into beyond just the singles. Mm. Mm. And really listen to the records. And man, when you get, and as you guys know this, when you dive deep into the records, those songs are as well-written and as, as moving. And it, not to say the singles aren't, but boy, you get three or four songs deep in the albums. And it's almost like the artist is saying, okay, I'll do this one for radio, yeah. but I've always wanted to do this one. Yeah, You know what I mean? And you're like, oh, and you listen to those songs. And oftentimes they're conversational too. Mm-hmm. They're less about the commercial, this is what radio expects and is wanting, and, and more about, you know, maybe a combination of, of, the, of the conversational with the more rhythmic over-the-bar kind of things. But uh, there's some, anybody who's poo-pooing country songwriting today have not gotten enough, they've not spent enough time listening to the albums because, man, there's some such great, great songs. Still yeah, they're only, they're only, you're, mm-hmm. that's a good point. They're only, they're only listening to the singles if they're even listening to that. Yeah. Or they look at it just going, that's not my rhythm. Yeah. yeah. That's not my type of melodic sensibility like it was when it 
whatever was imprinted on me, 70s, 80s, 90s country or, yeah. or whatever that was. It was kind of like their touchstone for that's what this is. Part of it may just be that because it sounds different and they're not. And, you know, and, you know, most oftentimes the label saying we need something exactly like that other one that just went to number one. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly and certainly radio is now participating in that whole in that catastrophe. You know what I mean? It used to be it used to be we're going to take this young introverted songwriter. We think he's got a lot of talent from Freehold, New Jersey. He's nobody. And then radio turns him into Bruce Springsteen and he's selling tickets and he's selling records. And now from a marketing perspective, I'm getting called into label meetings because they're feeling pain. Why? Because this artist isn't popular enough to get on radio. Yeah, no. And that's like, wow, man. Like I thought the labels did a really good job of sterilizing really good artists and now radio's helping. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there was a conversation once that Scott Borchette over at Big Machine said one time that I'll never forget. He said, uh, if an A&R person brings in somebody or a group or an individual artist that they're excited about, I don't want to see them. I don't want to hear anything. I want to see their socials first. Yeah. I have a buddy that was in, he had a couple publishing deal or uh, record deals on the table. And he's like, there's this one. He goes, it's freaking me out. I got a record offer on the table. They haven't listened to my music yet. Like they want to know the buy rates, the da da da, you know, the, the show me where you're playing, your social, all that streaming numbers, all that stuff. Yeah. And there he has an offer on the table. He's like, you want to hear some music? They're like, no, it's fine. I mean, you got, you got something you feel good about? Yeah. Okay. He's like, it's kind of freaking me out. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of sad. But it's also like, okay, that's what they do. They acquire small businesses and try to add zeros to the back. Here's the silver Here's the silver lining to that, okay? Because really what they're looking at, because the labels now have turned from really developing artists to being more acquisition-based business models, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're all about the business model. But that makes that artist – the influencer. Yeah. And so he's like, well, I got some other songs. you want to hear? And they're like, no, if you like it, we like it because he's the influencer. He or she owns the traffic. Mm. And so in a lot of ways, that says something about that label, not trying to meddle in it, you know, which I think is, is awesome. That's interesting. Yeah. Like, okay, you're going out and you're proving it. Proof of concept. What are your sales? You're doing it. You're doing it. Bye. Yep. It's good enough for me. That's a really positive way of looking at it. If indeed they do that. And I think, I think you're, you must be right. Yeah, that's good. We don't know what we don't know what's good, man. <laughs> we don't know what's good. I'm still listening to you know. I'm still listening to. I don't really listen to music. You know what it is? I don't really listen to music, guys. I listen to podcasts all the day when I'm driving around. So yeah. not me, but the label yeah. guys. Like I don't know music. Who listens to music? I've been listening to. <laughs> I look at data all day. He's like yeah. a freaking <laughs> analyst. He's like an FBI analyst in a dark room somewhere, just looking right. at data. Like, here's here's a viable artist. Why? Well, look at the numbers. You know, it's funny how we can talk about the craft of songwriting and rhythm is revolution, all that. And then it's so easy to get into the business side because it's right on right. It's part and parcel of what we do here. Mm -hmm. And that's why that's why it's cool that we're having these conversations. We're not dreaming somewhere in in Spokane, nothing against Spokane. But Mm -hmm. this is a you know, we approach this as as professionals and and this is what we do for a living. And And, and I will I will say this, too, like we just did a um. We advocate for the indies, obviously, on this podcast and, and all artists, but the empowerment of the indie artists to 
shed the I need to get a record deal thing to be somebody and encourage them to go be somebody and then get the record deal, right? Like it's the better way to do it. But having said that, because the marketing of music now has been decentralized, okay, I don't need a nod from the record label or also from radio too separately publicly traded companies that don't give a crap about your music. You know, I don't need that to reach an audience and to make it happen. And I think that is good for the art. I think that's, that's better for music. I think that's better because then the more that these artists understand this business part of it, but then are taking like what we're saying here about the craft and really being serious about doing that and having something to say and adding their own rhythmic revolution to it, um, it, there it is. And, and it changes the world. And it's exciting now because we always say it on, you know, on this podcast, it's like, you don't need anybody's permission now to go and be an artist and to make a living at being an artist. And so that business stuff, it's, it's, it's part and parcel now. I think that's like the little sort of hump in the marketplace and societal artists, societal stuff and writer societal stuff that we're getting over is like, you have to embrace that you're an entrepreneur right now too. Yeah, absolutely. I think though, and you, you guys may enlighten me otherwise, but it seems that with rare, with few exceptions, and I can't think of any right now. I know they're out there. If you want to, now we're talking about country, the country market, right? Yeah. If you want to be on the CMAs, or if you want to be an Opry member, you kind of have to have radio's endorsement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the independent guy out there, make you know, having you know a million fans and all that, but is not on country radio, or not a little too esoteric for for the uh, CMAs, or a little too outside for the for the Opry, uh, that, uh, not going to work as well. So if I think if, for the most part, you still need radio's nod. to But be able okay, to- so let me, let me add to the wrinkle to that. Okay. I'll agree with you completely on that for those specific things, right. For the CMAs, yeah. for the, for the Opry, but let's look at Florida Georgia line. You know, I mean, you could have come from a better pedigree, right. That whole camp over there with Wiseman and, and Joey Moy mm-hmm. and that whole thing. Mm-hmm. He's going to get meetings with everybody that can make a difference in town for anything. And they got passed on by everybody twice. You know, radio will never play it. Radio will never play it. Mm -hmm. And then they went and broke it their damn selves. Yeah. And then radio played it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think because it's, it's almost like radio doesn't have that same authority that they used to have because at the end of the day, right. They just want to not lose any more listeners. And so if they feel like a whole bunch of people are listening to this, yeah. they'll put it on there, you know, and if you can make a big enough stink, sure. yeah, I feel like you can change it. I feel like you have more power to change it now, let's say, than you did 30 years ago. And then radio and then if it, and then radio's gonna jump on those numbers if they're and, and they did if they're making it on their own. Yeah, they better they're gonna jump on that and they're gonna start playing those singles or the radio next door on the dial is gonna do it. Yeah. yeah. And now they're being invited to the opera. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. That's they're more of a lagging indicator gotcha. than they're more of a lagging indicator than a leading indicator. Radio is. Right. 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 But that's a really good way to put it, man. That's a really good way to put it. Like that's how much it changed. It used to be I got my MBA. It used to be a leading indicator. Now it's a lagging indicator. That's, that's crazy. That's crazy accurate. Well, yeah, I'd like to thank my uh, Arkansas State University for my master's in business administration degree. First time I've used that in years. Just right there. <laughs> but, you know, Steve, back to your point, what was the whole thing that was the initial turnoff to Florida Georgia Line was the rhythm. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I was going to say, I was going to say, we don't have to talk about what was the tipping point between the the, the music of the '90s and the thing that's going on now. I would say it was those guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and then Luke Bryan probably right, like those two. Yeah, yeah, Florida Joe, man, they just brought on something that was a different way of saying something in a different rhythm or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and for me, like I, I remember. So I have, I've had a couple of buddies that used to that I've known back when I was an artist that worked with my band back then, who've been on the Tim McGraw tour forever. And whenever they're coming through town, you know, wherever I was living at the time, in this case, the store I was in Los Angeles, and they're gonna hit me up. Hey, man, come on out. We're in town. You want to come out? Want a hug on your neck? You know, like we'll leave some tickets for you if you come. All right. So I remember going there, Glen Helen Amphitheater, and I'm walking in, and I know it's a Tim McGraw show, but there's a Marshall Stack there and a Les Paul, and I'm like <laughs> looking at the ticket like, like I'm messed up right now. Like I don't feel like this is the right place, but they let us through the gate. Like I'm trying to be like, what's happening? You know, this is this can't be right. Yeah. And then that was Luke Bryan. And then I remember a short time after that, this, this is right when Country Girl came out, and I was in Nashville mixing a record and we're at third and Lindsay and they got the TV behind the bar at third and Lindsay. And we're watching the show and the CMAs were on that night mm-hmm. and we're watching a live show, but out of the corner of my eye, I keep looking over cause I know it's the CMAs, but there's like four hot chicks in leather Daisy Dukes and stripper poles. Yeah. And I'm like, is that like Molly crew on the CMAs? Like what the hell is And I, and I, I hit my buddy. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And he's like, no dude, we can do that now in country. I'm like, that looks we like, that. that looks like Molly crew. <laughs> I'm like, I love this. Cause I, I was a rock guy. I came from a hair band, Steve. You know uh, what I mean? so, so to me, I was like, we can do that now in country. Now, this might make it more interesting for me. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, Brett, Brett, as a, put an asterisk on that. We we need to write. We can do that now. Oh, I, I took a mental note. I was like, I know you did. I saw your eyes. I know. I knew. I, I saw that click in. I'm just going. I was going to throw it out there to, 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 you for you to know me. that I know. I saw you. Sure, we can do that now. How? How? That is awesome. Yeah. Right. What rhymes with? Okay, so actually, so we can do that now. That's a title. What is the carryover or differences on how they might do that? kind of the nineties. Now, is there a, if somebody walks in with a, a title, we can do that now in 1995 and they walk in this year, you know, currently the tail end of 2023, when we record this, is there a difference? What do I, do I need a different tool bag if I want to be relevant? I think, I think if they, if a young writer walks in with that idea and, and you and I are sitting in there mm-hmm or another another guy who's been around or girl who's been around for a while and kind of come up through that craft we could do that now i think we would offer a way into that by saying well not what this is about mm-hmm. but what runs with now <laughs> <laughs> because that title will probably rhyme there maybe not mm-hmm. maybe at we can do that now mm-hmm. But probably now. So let's look. Let's work backwards from the word now. Funneled through that idea of we can do that now. Mm-hmm. We're not just having to sing about a cow, you know, or <laughs> yeah, about somehow. things have changed somehow. But and then start trying to find that payoff, that setup line that just snaps the tail on that hook, man. Yeah. Now we've got a direction to write. Uh, mm-hmm. I think if we did that, if we took the initiative and did that with the young writer. They might go, wow, mm-hmm. that's great. How do you guys, yeah, I love that. 
you know, as opposed to, and now we're off and running and maybe they would, now they're into it. Now they're rhyming. And so you, maybe you get that setup line, mm-hmm. whatever that is. And it might be a, a framing rhyme where the title's in the middle and you got two lines around it. You know, there's a lot of craft we could talk about, but right. you know, I think if we took the lead on that and said, hey, you know, what if we did this? I think the young writer would be like, and I know because I've done it, be like, Oh, I love that. Cause you're off and running and it's not, what is this about? Yeah. The what is this about can start happening in the verses, especially with if it's an artist that that's saying something about what they would like to say mm-hmm. for their audience, perhaps. But I think they would be like, wow, how do you guys do that? Just <laughs> 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 you know, like this, you know? Yeah. Letting your title write your song. It's kind of letting the rhyme inform like what's there that we can because you're kind of finding it together. Whatever that line is, is going to inform what the, what is the it? I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. What is that? Well, it's informed by what's above meatloaf. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, we've got the, I I think that's one of the wonderful things that older writers can, uh, more vintage Mm -hmm. writers can bring to a co-write. And I've been in there a hundred times. And it's like, as long as you know that when you start writing the song, there's going to be some rhythmic differences. Mm -hmm. There's going to be some things coming off her mouth and her guitar, for instance, that is not something I initially feel mm-hmm. that may be a little contrary to my how I would do it. But, you know, if you're a musician and you're an empathetic person like most writers are to some degree, I can get into that. It ain't like, well, I don't know how y'all do that. No, it's like, man, I, I'm there that fast. I, I can ride over the bar. I can I can, you know, and then there's not only rhythm. Let's get back to this a little bit. But the post chorus, you know, has been a thing. Yeah, right. That's one one real obvious and valid convention that has been added on to things that we didn't we didn't have post course. Yeah. I mean, I have a few examples mm-hmm. uh, from the early. I'm mostly going, oh, 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 <laughs> you know, post course, get it? Oh, oh, yeah, an embryonic <laughs> post course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So you know, the convention is being. Uh, innovated in some ways as so you're adding on more of a post course bridges are interesting where they show up if they show up over the bar riding my favorite post chorus is in country is growing up in little pink houses making out on living room couches yeah blowing that smoke on saturday night a little messed up but we're all all right hey yeah uh, yeah well that's your rock that's your rock heritage coming through there buddy Okay, it is, uh, but yeah, I, I just Good stuff. So, uh, globbed onto that vibe of that lyric, but yeah. There is some, th- th- you know, the lyric writing that's being done these days, man. I mean, there's a lot more of it, mm-hmm. but it ain't wasted. Yeah. There are some metaphors and some description that blow my mind. There's a lot of product placement too, which I'm, okay. There's a whole lot of product place, not just the truck. It's the Dodge Ram. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, which, okay, you know, okay, because it's more of a commercial audience, more materialistic, Mm -hmm. not in a bad way, but there's more materialism now than maybe. But, uh, you know, you got lines like, you know, there's one in, I think it's a Morgan Wallace. I said, I I lost my Dodge Ram mind. I was about to say that. Were you really? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was thinking, I was like, I lost my Dodge Ram mind. I'm like, that's freaking brilliant. I love that. (laughs) I knew when you read it the first time, you would have went, oh, Damn, that's good. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. so good on so many levels. <laughs> on so many levels. So you see that if the young writer threw that line out and the 90s guys were in the room, we'd be jumping up and down, kissing them on the face. It's like, that is so damn good. Yeah. So it's the same. Ultimately, it's we're going for that same thing that makes every writer in the room go, oh, hell. 
<laughs> I think there's more similarities than differences, honestly, with with, with the with the craft. Yeah, and I think melodically, it's, it's a lot more like ear candy stuff going on, phrasing wise. That like with the post course, it's just like okay, almost you know, like Beatles. Every you know that early Beatles stuff, especially every section is so hooky and so strong, and there's no. No, it's all killer, no filler. It's like from one hooky thing, like that verse was hooky enough to be a course. Oh my gosh, now we got to the course. Oh my gosh, the the middle eight or whatever mm. is so good. It's almost like sonically, it's like going to that kind of stuff. That's what the post course is like. Here's an opportunity to get some more hooks in the listener. Yeah. Here's another thing. Oh, you thought it was hooky so far? And I mean, a lot of that was like kind of that Mutt Lang Shania era, where you know he's so production that like we don't really care what the lyrics are because she looks great and it's going to sound great. And that's all you need. And it and it worked. Offended me lyrically on so many occasions. I get over most of that on CMT, you know, when I was in college. But anyway, and now it's like, hey, where's another opportunity to get more hooky, more sonic hooks, earworms, that kind of stuff, which a, so a lot of that 90s stuff was like very melodic and beautiful melodies and emotional and that and not as much like every square inch is like we're we're going high we're every square inch we're going to pack in more earworms it feels like that's one of the differences yeah you know when you know starting this was so interesting to me you know the idea of start you know more the objective approach as of songwriting you know solving songs rather than writing songs yeah um i was uh it was on a jimmy kimmel show the other a few weeks ago and he had billy eilish on there and phineas you know and they were talking about and he was asking him about their writing process and i was so thrilled when she said you know we used to just write for feeling and see what came up but she says now after doing it for so long we usually write start with a title mm. or a really strong idea and i'm like <gasps> Yeah. And then she said, and she said, it's so interesting because, and this was the killer. She goes, we start with a title or an idea and then we write it. And, and then she said, but the funny thing, when we look back over it, when we're done, our feelings are in there anyway. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's a, here's a top writer, man. It's like, you know, because it's almost sometimes I feel like I, I'm defending how we do things down here because a lot of people, not a lot, but some people would, would disparage our craft and how we do it as being unemotional or yeah, soul oh, factory the heart. soul yes yeah, soul yeah. factory you guys get in rooms and write from 10 to 2 and then another one from 4 to and of course just about everybody who's i've ever met who said that and we can we can pinpoint certain cities mm -hmm. that they come from and i won't say where exactly where they're from yeah. but you know, you, you get in a co-writing situation with, with those guys and, and it's a come to Jesus moment. They they're like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. You started with a title. It has nothing to do with your life, really. But it's making me cry. This is so good and sounds so real. I'm sorry. You know, yeah. because. Yeah. And the same way with the studio musicians, too. Oh. It's the same thing. It's like, yeah, you guys. Get, yeah, whatever. Out in L.A. now we and I. That happened recently. Larry Goldings and I had an opportunity to write. Larry Goldings is James Taylor's piano player. Oh, cool. We had an opportunity to write, and uh, we spent one day writing. The next morning, he called and said, hey, I'm going to be a little late. Publisher's going to – publisher buddy of mine, producer-friendly buddy of mine, is going to take me to uh, just a, a songwriter demo thing with real musicians at Sony Tree, the five guys with the session leader, you know, the way that they do it about – a third of the time now, maybe not even that many times, you know, but yeah. he was in there with real players and Larry was sitting in there, you know, 10 to two, 10 to one, 10 to one. 
And he shows up and he's like, he says, man, I have played with the best musicians in the world, whether it's Pat Metheny, James Taylor. He said, I don't know anybody that can do what they just did in three hours. Yeah. yeah. He said five songs in three hours that sound like that. He said it takes us a whole day to get half a song in L.A. Uh-huh. He said, and he was so humble, humbled by it. He said, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. Yeah. And so my point is, until you've been in the room with us guys and we're writing a title and we're solving the song in whatever pedantic way you want to talk about, or you're talking about the, the guys who are mailing in the same chord changes, come to one of those sessions yeah. and you walk out with your tail between your legs Usually enlightened if you're a humble person. Yeah. yeah. If you're interested in being better, you're going to be, you're going to have your ass handed to you. And, and, <laughs> and, but, but you're going to yeah. love it. You know, you're going to be like, oh crap, that's where the bar is. Inspired, Tell us about, um, real quick, a buddy of mine, we got a chance to write with a young artist, a friend of mine recommended like, Hey, he's, you know, so we wrote with this young guy. And so he's fairly new to town, whatever. Apparently hadn't had this. Oh, no, this was another one. So a guy brought an, a friend down from like Canada, this young guy. He found him on TikTok kind of thing. Good voice. Like, yeah, hey, just work with the somebody's in town. I'll watch you write with him. You'll be a, you'll be gentle for his first co-write, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, all right. So we were writing this thing and, and there's a, you know, we have this lyric and, and he's like, and the, the young guy, he's like 19, you know, sweetheart of a kid. But he's like, uh, yeah, but we need to, we need to rhyme there. I'm like, oh, that rhymes. He's like, no. And he's just right. He's like, I don't think that rhymes. I'm like, sing it. And my buddy sang it. He goes, holy crap, that rhymes. <laughs> you know? And it was like, yeah, welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> you know, he's like, what? <laughs> and, you know, and another young artist too was, you know, and they, it wrote with me and another guy that's, you know, he's been at it a while. And, you know, just the look on his face was like, oh my goodness what you know because i brought in part of a lyric he's like oh my gosh that's so thought out kind of thing and the other buddy who hadn't seen it before starts like laying melody over the top of it and he's like oh my gosh you know and it's pretty fun <laughs> well the knowledge i read i read something and i i earmarked it said the knowledge of something doesn't make it less beautiful oh that's yeah, nice. yeah. And the fact that we know what we're doing and we can maybe even codify those moves and then teach it to others mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's ultimately. Or, or by the way, less magical, right? Because mm-hmm. here, yeah. so when you, when you talk about, when you talk about writing, like this is fascinating about storytelling. Okay. And because we are like, it's a, we are hardwired as humans to respond to good storytelling to the mm-hmm. point yeah. where you can, Let's just take like blockbuster movie titles, you know, blockbuster movies. You know, there's a it's a three act play, right? They know what they're doing. They know exactly. There's a formula that they're using to to structure that. But you can still have the top screenwriters in Hollywood go to a movie and they can't help but get lost in the story, mm-hmm. even though they know what the hell's coming. Oh, yeah. And and. On a music aspect, I'll give you a different like experience I had with Tom Jackson. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Tom at all, but he does live show production. He's the the artist whisper that is on a plane when a tour starts to go sideways. Wow. He goes out and changes it around. Like Taylor Swift's merch sales went up 600% on her first tour wow. post Tom Jackson. Wow, okay? cool. Yeah, yeah. So, and he did uh, uh, this whole thing at a, the CD Baby conference one year when it was in Nashville. And he's taking this artist, it was 90 minutes, about an hour and a half. There's 1,200 people in the room. 
And he's breaking down the difference between live show production and playing like what's on the radio, right? For this, yeah. for this yeah. artist. Yeah. And he's like, okay, so he breaks it down and it's a lot of work to do with the whole band. Okay. Yeah. But you're there for an hour and a half watching him deconstruct and reconstruct this live performance. You know where every single punch yeah. is coming yeah. and where it's coming from. Yeah. But when they run through it, you're still, it has the same effect. Like you're sitting on the edge of your seat, like, holy crap, your heart's right here. Yeah. And it's like, it's a, it, it's night and day difference between hearing, and this was Trent, uh, Harmon, who won American Idol, mm-hmm. right, was the so, so a killer band, uh, American Idol winner vocalist, yeah. and they nailed that song the first time. But then when he got done, put it back together again, it was like a show, and you were yeah, like, yeah. "Holy crap!" And yeah, but you, and you, to your point, like you're right, like you, you can know every single punch, every single tool, exactly how they did it. Doesn't take away from the magic. Yeah, no, incredible. I think, I think it makes the magic. I think it makes the magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes the magic. I think that it is makes the magic. The, <laughs> that is the magic. There's a wonderful, there's a wonderful art criticism term that says limitations are liberating. Mm. Yeah, and the idea that you're working within boundaries—that's where the magic happens. That's where the fun happens. That's where play happens. Yeah, that's and you know you could have you could have every well. I mean, it's it's the tennis court. It's the basketball court. Mm-hmm. If you just let everybody do what they wanted without boundaries, it wouldn't be fun. It'd be chaos. Well, it's kids, man. Kids checking in. What are my boundaries? If I know my boundaries, I know my safe space. Yeah. I'm checking on mom and dad. Then I'm good to go play, and I don't have that anxiety it's, or the yeah. whatever of like I don't know what. What is safe? What is not? What boundaries? What's, you know? When I'm doing this James Taylor tribute, which I'm just, I mean, this thing started out as a daggone side hustle mm-hmm. with because we were having fun in Nashville with, you know, playing these songs because they're such great songs and it's a guitar world, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I, this, this, uh, um, agent from New York called and said, Hey, I hear you're doing this thing down there. You know, we might be interested in letting you, you interested in making money doing this. I was like, well, I don't know this world. What anyway? And so, you know, 380 shows later, this agent has has taught me as a performer. This this is to the, the whole magic of, of guardrails and limitations. Mm-hmm. When I play these 90 minute shows, they are 90 minutes, man. It ain't like, hey, what do you want to play next? It's a beginning, middle and an end. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the 45, the fifth, uh, the, the intermission and then the 45 on the other end of that. Mm-hmm. OK. How do you, it's 90 minutes, man. They don't, you know, it's an older audience. They want to get home and pay the babysitter or or let the dog out, whatever. They want to get home because it's, you know, it's harder to drive at night. Got to get their teeth in the jar by seven. (laughs) Teeth in the jar. Teeth in the jar. Art link letter comes on here in about 10 minutes. And uh, so it's 90 minutes, man. And when I started out doing this show, it was just kind of like, it was loosey-goosey sort of. My agent, who's brilliant at this, the Tom Jackson of, of this performing arts center world, mm-hmm. was saying, okay, blah, 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 bada, bing, then this here, then this here, and tuck this here. And, so. and now it's the same show every single time with the same set list in the exact same order every single time. I kind of know, no, I do know what I'm going to say, when I'm going to say it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, man, when we step off that stage after the second 45, we go, ooh, 91 minutes and eight seconds or 90 minutes and three seconds. We are so on it. Yeah. But it went from me not having near as much fun or not. This is this is the paradox. Not near as much freedom mm-hmm. as I have within that 90 minute 
structured space now because there's confidence there and I know where I'm going to be and now I can have fun and I can riff off of what I said here that what that I'm not having that I'll never probably ever say again and the mm-hmm. audience knows it was in the moment it's it's like a great comedian yeah you know they're working within within boundaries but then you're discovering the newness based on I've never done that backhand like that before yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's just you have to have boundaries in order to be conventional. Well, it's, it's, like math, math has boundaries, right? Math yeah. is oh, yeah. finite. But you can get super creative with math and do crap like we're doing now with algorithms and stuff like t- take it to whole new levels yeah. within the confines of that structure. But what makes it fun is that you know every single night you walk off the stage, you've blown people's minds in the audience. Yeah, yeah. You've blown their mind. That's one of the first things that young students of mine – learn and either work through or they abandon it and go and go back to their old ways of doing things most of them continue is the idea that convention is a good thing and limitations are what makes art and liberating and you know and so that plays to what how we craft songs and how i teach it Mm -hmm. what's the title let's start with the title let's solve this thing let's put a mask on and make sure that we're as true to the character we're creating in the song as possible it's a real system and it can be real uh pedantic and it can be academic if you want to look at it that way but in the end which is really the point at the end of this at the end of however you arrived at it whether you were looking out the window with a candle lit and you're and you're writing this song it just fell out of the heavens which they do sometimes but not until you prime that pump of course yeah or we're sitting trying to rhyme the title in a real structured way the end result is the thing yeah mm-hmm. the end result is if you're if you're affecting if you're making people if you're moving people in the way you intended that's the point and we've just gotten so good at it in nashville is because it's what we do every day yeah. you show up and you do this every day which goes back to the brill building which goes back to the uh, american songbook period in tin pan alley mm-hmm. and, and nashville has carried on that sort of tradition ever since mm-hmm. And the great writers during the Brill Building and, and the Tin Pan Alley days, they would adapt to whatever new rhythm mm-hmm. was happening, or they went away. And most, and, and they went away a lot of them. But the yeah. ones that carried on, Burt Backrack and everybody else, Quincy Jones, would mm-hmm. be able to adapt to the new rhythm that you're writing for. You're not the artist who's trying to sell your authenticity. You're solving that song, man. Yeah, I think there's a lot more freedom in that. There is. Well, because you know what? You know where you're supposed to go. The question is, and the creativity is, how are you supposed to get there? How are you going to get there? Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's that's yeah. the creativity. But, you know, fighting against the structure of it uh, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's like, no, we want to build a high rise using freaking balsa wood. Well, that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to yeah. blow over. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. a reason they use steel and mortar. <laughs> yeah. It kind of frees me up to think about the other stuff, the flourishes, the art of it, because I kind of got, we got the structure, like say with your show, you're not worried so much about the time because you know, that's all kind of taken care of. It's baked in. It is. You got that down. Now you can look for those moments to go, I'm going to riff off that. Cause this yeah, other stuff, it's not autopilot, but it's locked in. And therefore now I can, I can play. Because I know the swing set's not going to give way. It could be a disservice to your audience too, as a writer, if you're if you're being unconventional. Yeah. Because audiences expect certain things, certain guideposts when they're listening to songs. They want to know what the title is. Why are you telling me this? Why am I spending a minute, eighty seconds of my life listening to you talk? Why? What's the point? Is there something I'm either going to learn mm-hmm. by, or 
have a memory of or, or something. There's, you know, the difference between it's like the difference between songwriting and, and I don't know, a menu or how to put together a, a, a desk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, there's certain expectations that audiences expect when they hear songs that that are conventional. And I think I think that's a, I think that's important. Well, and it boils it boils down to the at its core, it's communication. You know, yeah. like like what what do you really want to do as an artist? I understand that your goal is to be different, and that's good. But you're not going to be different by changing some of the conventional the structures that they want to hear. You know, your rhythms can be different, your melodies can be different. But the reason that these work is because they work like this. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason stories work, three act plays work, because they work like that. It's like how here's the canvas, man. Like, what are you going to paint on it? But you're arguing about the canvas. Like, yeah. okay. <laughs> I have this, <laughs> this 15 minute mini sitcom and I really want to get it in theaters. Yeah. It's a 15 minute <laughs> mini sitcom. Can you get it in theaters? Right, right, right. The idea of like writing from a title, in, which is not the only way to write a song, of course, but often it is. Mm-hmm. That's how we uh, kind of start a, lo- a lot of times. That's what we collect song titles yeah. and why I've collected eight since we've been talking. <laughs> and um, it's like, it's to me, it's like, you know, I'm driving, my wife, Amy's in the car and, you know, was like, Hey baby, where do you want to go for dinner tonight? Oh, I don't care. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay. Or, you know what, you know, honey, tyranny of choice. Chinese would be nice. Oh, I know this great. Yep. Now, the, now we know where we're going like a title. Mm-hmm. Now the journey is fun. Yeah. And you're seeing things you would have never really noticed because you're not thinking, oh, where, where you're are not we? You're stressing we're, out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of tough sometimes if you walk into a room. So I write with artists a lot. And because it's like, what do you need? What do you want? Oh, I have some of those. Yeah. Because, you you know, guys like you and me, we have so many titles, so many things we could do. So there's just, it is like Johnny said a second ago, the tyranny of choice. It's like, give me some. Where do we start? Yeah, it is that. Where do you want to eat? I don't care. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, but you're the one I'm trying to make happy here. Yeah. So why don't you just tell me? <laughs> right. And it is nice having that, like, oh, so and so's looking, or here's where the opportunity is. Oh, well, let's see if we can do something for that. That's fun. That's, and it's putting puzzles together. I like how you said solving songs because it's like, yeah, we put together, I put together puzzles for a living, but mm-hmm. what kind of puzzles? I don't know. I haven't decided what it's going to look like yet. Yeah. I got to build the, I got to cut out the pieces and make the pieces right. and figure out what the picture is going to be and then put it together. Yeah. It's I create and solve puzzles in a way. Mm-hmm. So it helps to have some sort of box. Getting back, getting back to the original thing that that hasn't changed much with the craft mm-hmm. in this town uh, of writing country songs. It's just the rhythms are different. Some of the structure is different. The post choruses and, and what have you over the bar phrasing melodically. The chord changes aren't as venturesome as back in the day. Although you you starting to hear them come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of those chord changes, you know, uh, uh, folks are learning that if you play a C and take your first finger off, wow, it's the beach. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is what Kenny Chesney was been doing the whole time. Brilliant. <laughs> and their moms are going, oh, that's Dan Fogelberg. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Seven summers ago. Wow, you just take your first finger off a C chord and you're at the Panama City Beach. Well, hell. Yeah. <laughs> so that's coming back, but uh, mostly the same. Well, that's good to know that there's, you know, for some more seasoned cats out there that might feel like they're getting left behind, there are very valuable things. Some of that old school craft is really just 
still timeless. It's still there. You still have value to bring to the room. You still have, you know, for a guy like me, that's good to know too. As a lyricist is like, well, lyrics still matter. Ideas still matter. Putting stuff together still matters. That's why I'm still getting in rooms. with. I mean, I write people that are like, wow, you're my son's age. That's kind of weird. Or you're younger than my son. That's kind of weird. Okay. <laughs> you know, but I, and I love it, but it's like, you still have things to bring to the table. Isn't that funny that age would have anything to do with your prowess as an artist or as a, as a, as a writer. Yeah. It's just like, it's such a, the, the business is so young and getting and always been young that it's like an odd mm-hmm. thing, you know, and I, I'll have an artist, a, a young writer, for instance, will say sometimes, which they always do out of, I don't know why, I guess maybe they're self-conscious in some ways, but they'll say, uh, yeah, I read your bio. I read your. I googled you, man. You were writing songs for like Daryl Wood and so that's back in the nineties, man. I, shit, I I graduated high school in nineteen ninety one, and I and I always say I say youth is not a virtue. Yeah. <laughs> if you're bragging, it ain't working. You know. I mean, I, it's like so. Yeah. You know? I was writing yeah. with an artist that, who I I really like, and and so this buddy of mine and I. We're writing with her and it came, I was like, man, buddy, how long have we been writing? Where's that first song? And he was just kind of reminiscing while she was there. And I was like, oh, we wrote that song in 2005. Like, cause I got the database. I'm boom. We wrote that in like January, 2005. I was just signed at major Bob, whatever. And she gets this look. I'm like, were you born yet? She's like, I was three months old. I'm like, by the, fir- <laughs> the first time he, this dude and I had written together. And I mean, we brought it up. It's just funny though. But here we are. That's one thing I love about it is that, you know, she's younger than my oldest son we're working together as professionals and you know, it's a give and the take and it's fun. And that's one thing I love about it is like, I don't have to only work with people my age and there's no time limit. And that's something that, you know, we're all bringing value to the table and cause she's the artist that we're writing for. So we're like, how would you say this and what matters to you? The really smart ones, the really self-realized smart writers and artists are the ones that see the value in what we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've mentioned Morgan Wallace's name 80 times, but it's like, man, when you look at his catalog, he is smart enough to not have to be on every song. Yeah. Yeah. He records songs that he's not even a co-writer on. Yep. And when you look at the guys in the parentheses, we're like, oh, Marv Green, he's been along around as long as I have. Oh, whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, he's smart and he's rock yeah so any you know the smart ones are like man this is you know it's not about ego it's not about oh i have to be on the song even if i'm not a writer which is a whole nother conversation that nashville has yeah, yeah and, uh, and other writers don't have to be young like to yeah. uh, it to be a good song <laughs> yeah. that works for me yeah. where did age come yeah. yeah but i know but i've heard artists like that are for whatever got a little a little momentum or a little attention who are still residing in like the fricking shallow end of the gene pool, you know? And they think like that. And it's mm-hmm. like, like, I know what you're trying to get at. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I, but you're trying to manifest it the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. 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 And you just got to smile and bless their hearts. Yeah, and, God bless you. <laughs> I don't know. But I always thought it was always funny how age is even a thing in the arts. Mm-hmm. Why is that even why does that have to do with anything that we're doing together right now? What yeah. yeah. And it doesn't, I think the fear is the relevance. Okay. Is this going to sound dated? Yeah. It's going to be da, 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 you know, which is funny. Cause I was telling my wife some, you know, some terminology, some slang, whatever. And it's funny cause she's 10 years younger than me. Braggart. And you know, I know stuff that, yes, that cradle's empty, but the cradle rock. Braggart. And anyway, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Name dropper. That's right. <laughs> But uh, anyway, 
but it's funny that she doesn't know some of the stuff. She's like, what is that? What is this? What does that mean? I'm like, yeah, I think that's already over, but this is the thing, you know, I'm trying to keep up with it because yeah. I hear it in writing rooms or I hear it on, you know, cause it's like part of it is staying relevant and staying, you know, there's certain things that are like, yeah, writing from titles that are timeless and other things it's smart to go, okay, how would you say that? Cause you're, you know, this 20 year old artist, if this is the, yeah, the world we're aiming for this audience, yeah give a lot of respect to, okay, I know how to put the blocks together. What color do we paint them might be the verbiage, the wording. I'm going to let you lead on that because you know how your friends are talking yeah, yeah, yeah. more so than I know how my kids are talking because they're mainly talking with Chinese accents. I've tried to stay away. For the most part, I've stayed away in those ideas on how to write a song in this book and in the class and most of the, the way I teach. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, how would they say it nowadays? Let's write it like they would product placement let's write over the bar let's write a bunch of words here let's let's don't use these chords because it by the time the book is out and the classes are started it's going to be changed right you know there'll there'll be a new thing so i don't think it's wise to concentrate and you weren't saying this but to concentrate on if you're going to teach someone how to write songs this is how they do it now and if you want to get cut this is what you need to do you need to write it like this what I'm teaching is more of the, in the class and in the textbook is more of the the solving part. The chapters are like song form, mm-hmm. okay. And the only form I'm going to be talking about is not refrain, because no one's written a refrain song in such a long time. And if one of the viewers out there, listeners, can give me one of those in country music, I'd love to see it. But it's not blown in the wind, you know, the refrain, A A B A form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm you know, from the American songbook and stuff is still occasionally you'll see that. And then there's, there's certainly modified AABAs, but most importantly and widely is the, uh, the verse chorus forms. Yeah. Right. And then the different configurations of that right form. And then their structure, which is like what's inside the form mm-hmm. bridges, post choruses, verses, pre choruses, those kinds of things. And then title placement, to me, is kind of the crux of it all. Mm-hmm. You start out and you go, you need 50 titles or ideas, mostly titles, in your hookbook before you even start this course. Yeah. And now we're going to be taking those song ideas, titles, we're going to be taking those titles and we're going to be placing them in a certain place in the song. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be precursing it with a setup line and maybe a payoff line if it's a certain kind of treatment, right? Yeah. But I think title placement creates the form mm-hmm. because you can tell, like, you can kind of tell where that this sounds like it needs to be at the top of the chorus yeah. because it's a big exclamation. Right. Mm-hmm. And you start learning that you start gaining that intuition. The more yeah. you do this, we feel it because it's intuitive. Yeah, we do, because there are titles. I'm like, I feel like this is the first line and second from the last line in the course. And then we got that like payoff line afterwards. Like why it just, you know why you feel that way? It's not the end. You know why you feel that way? Cause I've been doing this for since 1994. <laughs> Because you've been listening, in, because you've been listening intentionally mm-hmm. for decades, yeah. and I think that's the whole—that's the whole thing. That's another main part of this course. You will listen to these song examples intentionally. You're going to be listening for title placement. Mm-hmm. You're not going to just be listening to enjoy the song because you don't have to enjoy the song to learn something from it. Yeah, you're going to be listening so intentionally to where that title shows up and be able to articulate it when it's over. You're going to say, Oh, it's at the top and bottom of the chorus book ended. Okay. Now what's the setup line? Mm-hmm. What well, was a perfect rhyme with the end of the title, or it was a perfect rhyme with some other word in the title. Yeah. And so when you listen that intentionally, and this is the, this is the thing that blew my mind. 
when you listen intentionally, like we did, well, like we've done for decades, you start building these mental representations in your mind, mm-hmm. these blueprints of those moves that great songs did. Yeah. And then when you're faced with that situation in a co-write or something, that map will physically, honestly, physically show up in your head. This blueprint, this mental representation will show up and you'll go, oh, I got it. Let's go to the second verse now. Let's go to a bridge now. Well, well, we don't have a second verse yet. Yeah, but there's just trust me. We need to let's just go to the bridge because why? Because a great song does that did that at one point. Now you have that blueprint that you can draw on. And the only way to get those blueprints is by listening intentionally. Yeah. And that's one of the first things I tell these students. I say, you can learn more from learning to listen intentionally to songs than anything I'll ever teach you. Mm-hmm. Listen for certain things. How many, I can listen, probably you can too, Johnny, but I can listen to a song, don't test me, but I can listen to a song one time and pretty much tell you title placement, setup lines, the rhyme scheme, how many lines in each section. Yeah. A lot of times the chord changes Yeah, because I'm going, because it's based on things we've already learned. Yeah. And those mental representations show up and the younger you start listening and the more often you start listening to songs intentionally, the more you're drawing those blueprints that you can then use that will come out. Honestly, it's actually a physical sensation. You'd be like, Oh, wait a minute. Like you felt it like, Oh, we need to go to the verse. We need a bridge right now. Yeah. And you can't really explain why, but something did it that was successful back in the day. Yeah. Successful meaning craft wise mm-hmm. that you're drawing on from experience. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's reps. It's building. I almost think like it's a, either a, maybe it's a chess master, you know, who's like, Oh, Oh, the board's looking here. Okay. This is, these are the moves. Right. Or, uh, which is basically just a, and that's a metaphor for combat. You know, maybe if you're a judo expert or whatever, all the stuff I can't do, you go, Oh, Oh, your hands here and your, and your weights on your left leg. Don't even have to think about it. The muscle memory, boom, or a defensive back who's done the rep so many times, like, Oh, they don't have to think about it. It's that kind of the muscle memory kind of thing, which is interesting. That just comes from, from reps and that's it doing that craft again and again and yeah and thinking about it intentionally what you're doing yeah if i put 60 percent of the weight on my back leg and point my elbow toward the rim i'll be hitting my free throws another 20 percent or 30 percent better mm-hmm. and that's what how do you realize that how do you come to the point where you learn that from coaches yeah exactly from coaches, if, if, you're do, if you're trying to do it on your own, you can do it on your own, but it's going to take a hell of a lot longer than if you have a trusted mentor or a system and a coach who can say, look, you're hitting 40% of your free throws. Mm-hmm. It's going to be painful because you're not used to it, but yeah. if you point your elbow at the rim, put 60% of the weight on your back leg, you're going to be hitting 95% of your free throws. And the analogy is there with martial arts, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. The analogy is there with rock climbing. The analogy is there with dancing the analogy is there with everything but a coach a mentor is so important if you can find a good one early Mm -hmm. if you're not self-initiated enough to learn on your own like the right things to learn yeah that's awesome well that might be a good segue here toward what kind of what you're up to now and and where people can find you and because we can talk about this all day long (laughs) and we actually have if you include before we hit the red button we have it's already it's already Monday. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Which is, yeah. I love this. This yeah. is why, why I love working with food. I just had a, I just had a birthday. <laughs> <laughs> we just got older. 
where all the presents under the tree go? Yeah. <laughs> Both of them. Both presents. Exactly. So what's going on? What, tell us about whatever you want to lay on us here. Where people can find you, where people can learn from you, work with you, any of that kind of stuff. Well, I've been teaching this every other Wednesday class at the Musicians Association, known as the uh, Musicians Union, Mm -hmm. down on Music Row. 11 Music Circle North, I think is where that is. Mm -hmm. I've been teaching a free every other Wednesday class and developing this method in real time with real people, which has been great. Yeah, And so that's been going on for several months. And now I'm converting to a, a real more of a semester sort of curriculum where it's hopefully, and I haven't gotten a nod yet on the union. If I could do it two days a week, instead of they gave me the nod on one day a week, but I'm hoping to do it Mondays and Wednesdays for 12 weeks, which is like 37 face-to-face courses and a textbook based on what we've been talking about, solving songs, how we did it in the nineties. And the name of the course in the book is, you know, the craft of a country, the the craft of a Nashville songwriter, how we did it in the nineties and how they're still doing it today. And it's based on the principles of how we wrote and how they're writing today. And you can see the the similarities and you can, you know, like we handed them the baton, you know? And so there's, there's um, um, examples of these principles, uh, both from the nineties through the mid two thousands and then brand new today. And you can just see the the cross pollination that's been going on here. And so, and again, teaching, teaching craft, Mm -hmm. you know, and we can talk forever on that, which we've already done some of that. So that book will accompany the course, the first 12 week course, which will start in March. And I love that. It's only, it's very limited Seats. ownership, right? Like it's only like 10 to 12 people that can be in this course at a time, right? There's 12. Yeah, there's 12 seats because I want it to be uh, I want it to be intimate like that. And the space is just right over at the Musicians Union for, for 12 mm-hmm. people. And that was the magic number at Belmont, too, when I taught over there. Now, they, they've since expanded that number of kids in a room. And I don't think it's, it's I'm hearing it's not near as what it used to be. But, mm-hmm. but anyway, so 12 seems to be about the right number of that's a nice synergy there. And so it's limited to 12. The first session starts March, and then the second session will start in uh, July and go for another 12 weeks. The same course two times a year. Okay. Um, And it's 18 group classes for 38 hours face-to-face, also with two private half-hour Zoom sessions. Oh, very cool. Basically with me and the student Mm -hmm. to half an hour through the semester to find out what they need to help and whatever like that. And that's that's a $1,200 cost which if you if you break it down it's like 32 bucks an hour of face-to-face instruction which you can't find anywhere yeah that's that's crazy man and from steve Lazen. yeah man i just I, don't, I want to make it affordable for people who really need it and and you know it's it's so competitive i mean if you break down the numbers of belmont hours and mtsu hours and even berkeley hours as far as concentrated mm-hmm. curriculum with songwriting it's not even close to what you're having to pay for oh yeah that. so it's it's you know it's um seems like it's a sweet spot for now. And if it becomes something that people just are clamoring to get into, you know, and it's, and people are signing up two and three years in advance, then I'll probably increase the price. So <laughs> exactly. Until, until then, uh, I think it's affordable. And uh, that's awesome. And I know we're going to have a link cool. in the show notes to, yeah, uh, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. So click the show notes. If you're interested, there'll be a link there that'll take you to the next step in that. And any, any other place where we can find you or anything else going on that we should be aware of? Cause 
SteveLeslie.com, of course, makes that easy. Mm -hmm. Anything that I'm going on there. You can sign up for the newsletter there, which would be very helpful. Awesome. At SteveLeslie.com, you can slash newsletter. You can see it up in the drop down. But that would help me keep anybody interested in what's going on and when it's happening and if there's any changes in the schedule or or what have you. But I'm excited. I'm really excited about it. It seems like it's it's something I've been uh, wanting to do for a long time. You know, it's like my brother said, he said, man, this, and we talked about method acting earlier, Johnny. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, he said, you've taught at universities and you have an idealistic idea of what that really is. And when the, when it really happens, it's not the dead poet society and you're not the guy with the pipe mm -hmm. and the, and the, the things. The, <laughs> yeah. the elbow patches. <laughs> the old patches on the, on the smoking jacket, you know, and the Irish setter yeah. and you know, in the fireplace. And you're like, Limitations are liberating. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's not that way at universities. Forget that dream. You know, I've done it adjunct in some other place. I've been close to doing some things on a more serious, but, but it ends up not happening. And there's a reason for that. My brother says, you know what? He says, think of the method acting. The guy that came up with method acting, he started with a couple students in a room. And now it's yeah. one way to yeah. really do it in a big way. He think, he says, I think your method is could be that sort of huge thing eventually, but just start with a small number of people and, and let them get the work. Let them be your uh, shepherds for the initiative yeah. and let them talk about it, man. And so it, I'm so grateful that the union said, well, hell, you can do it here. Yeah, I thought, oh, That's great. And I went in that room and I thought, this is so it finally. It's not academic. It's real. It's in the music row. It's like, smells like Music row. <laughs> yeah. Hot chicken and broken dreams. Yeah. Smells like music row. It's, you know, smells like what? Patchouli now. Yeah. <laughs> smells like old skull and broken dreams. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Is that a tune? <laughs> old skull. <laughs> uh, that just happened. Yeah. Old skull and broken dreams. I had a, I had a, uh, well, I won't say who, but I had a, a very popular artist who decided it was important that he be on the song. And so we had it 99.9% .9 written, but he decided that again, he needed to be on the song. Yeah. And so we got together the next day and, and uh, we were throwing out some things and he was sitting over there, you know, recovering from a, a hangover and being nice, bless his heart, being nice and excited. And wow, here he is. The artist's going to write with the artist and get the cut probably because he's right there, you know? Yeah. And I threw out a line that, you know, we needed like two lines for a bridge and I threw out a line and he goes, I just come out of you like it. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's what writers do. Yeah. It's a gift, baby. I'm making miracles happen every day. This is a Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> I just come out of you like it. Yeah. I wanted the same thing about their, about some people's vocals. Like, well, how did that? Yeah. Oof. Oh yeah. God bless oh my you. God. Yeah. We each have a role to play. Absolutely, man. Yeah. That's right. Like producing that producing that Colin Ray record, you're like, okay, we got it in two passes. We made him do two more. And I, but usually we do like 17, but I feel like we're done. Are we done? Like that was ridiculous. You know what yeah. I mean? Like so good. It's just like Frank Sinatra in and out. You're like, holy crap, that just happened. Okay. Do you you guys remember you guys remember Katrina Elam? Yeah, yeah. Uh -uh. Oh, what a singer. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. Oh, my God. She had a deal on Universal South and was opening up for Keith, Keith Urban. Then she just decided, you know, she's been singing on stage since she was five. And she goes, 
I don't like this. I don't like the traveling. I don't like the food. And, you know, it's like kind of cool. Yeah. That she's like, you know, and everybody was thinking she was the best vocalist since Martina McBride and Trisha Yearwood. But she was like, I just don't, I don't like it. The lifestyle sucks. She said, <laughs> you know, honestly, that girl one time talking about singers who surprised you. We went into a demo session one time. We wrote a lot together, dear friends. She was singing on a song that we wrote. And the engineer, we had, this was over at the, I don't want to say Sony. Where was this? I don't remember. But it might have been over County Q back in the day. Mm. But I don't remember. Anyway, we were in there. And this, uh, the engineer was new. We hadn't, we hadn't met the, this particular guy before. And he was going to be doing the vocals, you know. Yeah. And I went in there and I said, he goes, yeah, this is my, you know, I'm, I've been around a while, but I just got over from another studio and I'm, you know, I'm here to, this is Katrina. Oh, nice to meet you, Katrina. Didn't know her. And I said, okay. And when she was in there and I said, okay, buddy, this is her first time. <laughs> you set him up. Oh boy. Go, e gentle. go easy on her. Be yeah. e gentle. It's going to take some time, but she's, she's a sweetheart and there's some, she's a great writer. She wants to sing her own song. So just be gentle. And Katrina was, I mean, just incredible vocalist. First time you're like, you're talking about Colin Ray or whatever. It's like, yeah. holy mackerel. And she was like, she was playing. She's like, now do I sing? Do I have to get close to this thing? <laughs> <laughs> He came out and he adjusted the windscreen for it. He said, now, if, if you're singing loud, so maybe move back a little bit. Right here, if you just, you know. <laughs> and she goes, what are these buttons? Well, if you want more guitar, so, and we'll work with you on that. But just let's just do a run through. What's a run through? And we're just, just sing through. Man, when he hit the downbeat and she's, wow. <laughs> he just. He threw up his headphones and went, you son of a... <laughs> <laughs> You're like, hey, huh? Huh? Come on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, was she? Was that just the way she was doing it, or was she playing along with you to try to set oh, it up? She's playing, no, she's playing along. Oh, yeah, that's so that's good, great. dude. That's so oh, funny. She kicked right up on it. <laughs> what are all these buttons over here? Yeah. What, <laughs> what are these called right here? My hair backs? The hair back? What do you call them? Hands. Now, do I sing into this thing or do my, what's this? What? <laughs> he was sweet. No, now, honey, get a little closer. And then she went, <laughs> he just looked at you like you're an asshole, Leslie. <laughs> I mean, you had to do that, right? Yeah, yeah you had you to. Had to. You had to. <laughs> awesome. Well, right on. Well, we, we will put, um, We'll put the links in there. And guys, if you really want to get in the deep dive into the craft, boy, this is, I can't think of a better way mm -hmm. to do that. You know, if you got proximity to Nashville or you can get proximity to Nashville, then make it happen. And Steve, thanks so much for coming and spend so much time with us, man. Yeah, this man, is, it's great. Uh, I just love your energy, dude. I love the way you think, your humility. And you've given me so much to think about just in our interview, you know, like right off the bat, I'm going to, Steal the listen with intention thing. I've been having a problem communicating to my artists from a marketing perspective mm -hmm. of like, we need to do some cover songs mm -hmm. for social media, right? This is not reinventing the wheel. This is, you know, 50% of the first five Beatles records were all covers. First two Stones records, all covers. Like this is reality, yeah. but you know, you got to put your thumbprint on it. Artistic license to change it however you want to change it. But I want them to go, I've been trying to figure out how to tell them, like to listen to some of these big covers that are on YouTube and listen to what they did differently. Listen to why they're compelling, like learn 
why they're compelling and you can do it. And you just gave me the connected those dots. Like to listen with intention to the original and then what they did, you know, this is a bluegrass band that did a gangster rap song from Snoop Dogg, like figure out how that works. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And be able to, and to your point to be able to have the language to articulate what they're doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you will probably have to help them with that. I mean, to be able to listen to something. Yeah. Well, you help me with that. Like, I, I'm not getting through yeah. to them. They're not, you know, they're like, well, that's not country. Like, I know. Precisely. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> but you just sing anything. You can sing the phone book and make it sound country. So let's pick some big songs and blow some people's minds. And this is going to move. I've done that with young artists on videos, too. I mean, yeah. sat young, young artists down. And I mean, honestly, I, I call it my training film. I've got Barbara Streisand, dude, mm-hmm. back in, it's black and white. It's called My Name is Barbara. It's her very first television appearance. She's, she's 24, 21. Wow. She's a star on Broadway. And the second, the second uh, video uh, television that you can get on DVD now and, and YouTube, for heaven's sakes, uh, it's called Color Me, Barbara, and it's in color. Mm-hmm. And the, both of them are incredible. The first, vid- the, the first show called My Name is Barbara, 50% or 80% of the show is just her face. Yeah. Hmm. And she just, her face is on like close up and she's singing. And mm-hmm. every once in a while, this hand will come up and it's all choreographed ahead of time. And I've had, I, I say, watch this. And these young girls are going, one said, Steve, I can't move my head. <laughs> I cannot not look at her. Yeah. And there's nothing going on. There's nothing going on on stage, not even stage. It's all in her face. It's all in, in this performance that's happening with her face. And, and so the, the same sort of intention can happen viewing too. Like, look what, look what she's doing right here. How can you, do you resonate with that for your own performance? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You steal from the great, you steal. She stole from Judy Garland for heaven's sake. And she, and she openly admits it. That's exactly, I steal from James Taylor and Hugh Prestwood and yep. Stephen and blah, blah, blah. And if you're not willing to say who you stole from or you don't even know, you're not a pro. Yeah. Good artists borrow, great artists steal. Mm-hmm. They sure do. They're happy to do it. You know what I mean? It's specifically like about Streisand. Like I use her as an example too, but I'm talking about Tom Jackson in the hall. Like, cause you know, the basic premise of where he comes from is that a live show is not the radio, right? It's 55% of a live show is consumed with your yeah. eyes. Yeah. And so you're setting up the moments with your eyes, yeah. right? And without even saying something, it's the body language that's the difference oh. between Barbara Streisand doing a pregnant pause. Yeah where you can hear a pin drop oh. in a stadium. And if she wants to, she can kill everybody sure because will. they'll hold their breath until it's time to clap. But they know what to do because she's communicating it. And then the the songwriter at a writer's night that tries to do the pregnant pause and then everybody starts clapping and it turns in and then they start singing and it's like, you know, a metal folding chair being thrown down a cement staircase. It's just friggin' chaos. You know what I mean? And that's, that's craftsmanship. And the thing, the thing about Barbara, and something that the listeners can certainly glean, not only from we talked about intentional intentionality when it comes to writing, but intentionality to performance. She worked up every single move that she ever did because she's scared to death to be out in yeah. front of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Everything that she does that comes across so natural, whether it's people, people yeah. who need people, whatever that is. 
that takes your breath away. It's she does it in front of a mirror until she's happy with it. And it's so structured because she has not, not the confidence for heaven's sakes. Yeah. Still to this day, still to this day, <laughs> to this day and to work within those confines and make it look so natural is that's the hard work, man. You know, you know, the last, I hadn't thought about this in a long time. A country artist who does that for me or who did it for me was Jennifer Nettles. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. She had that same compelling, she told the story on her face. Mm -hmm. And so many artists today, it's more about the big show and you can't see their face. Or if it's a video, it's about the other things that are going on. Yeah. yeah. Miranda did that really well. I mean, uh, yeah, Miranda did that really well with the house that built me too. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And if you don't have that, don't do it. But if you have that ability to to tell the story on your face yeah and with your and with your voice yeah <laughs> build out from there that's a whole nother thing about his artist development all that but the idea of being intentional about your moves yeah in your performances you know i mean even when you're doing a show and I, i'll remind you of this and then i'll shut up because it's january <laughs> but when um i was getting ready to do a bluebird show one night with my trio this was about 10 years ago, I had upright bass player, Jim Ferguson, and Will Barrow was playing piano and I was playing guitar. And we were doing a trio thing at the Bluebird. That, those Wednesday nights when you're able to do like group things, you know, mm -hmm. as long as it was original music. I think they still do that. And Janice Ian, who taught me so much about so much, said, uh, oh, you're playing the Bluebird tonight. How are you going to start the show? Mm -hmm. I go, I mean, it's the Bluebird. And she's smart ass and I love her. She's like, let me guess. You're going to get up and you're going to tap on the microphone. Test, test, test. Yeah. You, how's everybody doing? And your drum is going to be going, your piano player is going to be going chung, chung. And your bass player is tuning. And you're going, can I get more guitar? Is that how you're going to start your show? I go, what's the bluebird? Yeah. And she goes, no, man. She goes, they got to know if it's free or not. They got to know that this is a show. There's a yeah. beginning, there's a middle and an end. And she talked me through some things. And man, that night, a couple nights later, I, the lights went down and it's a, I do it all the time. Well, I learned what the James said. The lights go down. They announced, ladies and gentlemen, Steve, and out walked my bass player mm -hmm. through the audience from the bathroom because it's so small. Yeah. Right? It comes up and everybody's quiet and like, wow, the show started. He picks up his instrument. Yep. Here comes Will, piano. He walks up, sits behind the piano. Whatever. And then I'm walking up. Yeah. Get up on stage. I don't say any, how y'all doing? No. <laughs> I do that funny sometimes. I say, how's everybody doing? Let's start with you, sir. How are you doing? And you're <laughs> the lady next to you. How are you doing? Anyway, so I put the guitar on and all of a sudden launch into a song and the whole night feels like a performance. It had an yeah. ebb and a flow. It's a moment. You, you're creating the mo What you did there is create a moment. Like it, it's a moment. Important. It became important for these people, even if they didn't pay, they got a babysitter and they drove and they found a parking spot. Mm -hmm. But that, that's what they're going to remember is the moment, yeah. right? Not the, yeah. not even the musicianship. It's the moment that they're going to yeah. remember, you know, like we, we, we did that with um, this artist that I'm working with now, Mackenzie O'Brien, that has that Sugar Daddy Issues song that Brent co-wrote with. You know, I got to send you that track, by the way. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Please. Yeah, yeah. But the first conversation we ever had, I was turned on to her by a publisher friend of mine. And, and she's like, well, she's from Chicago. She's like, look, I got a, a big show opening up for Parker McCollum. It's a sold out show. It's in like less than a week. What advice do you have? And so, and I stole this right from Tom Jackson. You know, I said, well, my, I'm guessing that you're probably going to, how long you got? She's like 45 minutes. I'm like, that's a good set. 
It's like, yeah. I said, you and your band are probably trying to figure out how many songs you can shove into 45 minutes. She's like, yep. I'm like, no. <laughs> no, like, like it's, it's not about the music. It's about the moments. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and, and I added two things. I said, whatever song you're going to start off with, I said, I want you, I want the band in the background, just walk up to the microphone and vamp on the chorus acapella. And then when you get done with the chorus, kick in the song and go. Yeah. And then I said, are you doing any covers? And she's like, yeah, we're going to do this and this. And we switched one cover in there. But I said, if you're going to do Dreams from Fleetwood Mac, I said, do the same thing. Like start that song off, mm. singing an acapella mm. just by yourself and then have the band kick in and take your time. You don't have to sing it like in time, like you can vamp on it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we, uh, my fiance and I, fiance and I ended up flying up to see that show because we just really just wanted to see what was going on. And she did all those things. Like she didn't know me from a can of paint. So she had the balls to do that. Right. Number one. Yeah. But yeah. it was, and those are like, that's three moments, right? Three things, just three things she did on the fly. And it changed everything. Like everybody yep. shut up yeah. talking when she started singing. Yeah. Okay. And it was like, because it, it might've been, she might've been saying something about their license plate and the car's getting towed. Right. Or something. Yeah, right, but, right. but then they just, she, she commanded her attention without, yeah, without doing that. You know what I mean? It was just a different way to do it. And it was a pattern interrupt. Okay. And then there was a show. And when she sang dreams, like from the third word, the whole crowd was singing it with her. Yeah. And you could just see her, Steve, like just float up off the stage. Awesome. Like she got so high from that energy. Yeah. You know? And then and then the band kicks in and they didn't stop singing. They sang every single word of that song with the band from the beginning to the end. And it became this moment where it was us now. It's not just her. It's like we're doing this together. Wow. It was fantastic. But those are the things, right? That's the communication. That's the... That's it. Whole, it. It's played to everything we've talked about for two hours. The main thing, whether it comes to craft, solving a song, production, listening and listening, building mental representations, however you want to codify it and think about it. It's about being intentional. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Intention is huge, whether that means convention or that means, I mean, it's to be intentional about your choices. Yeah. It's the difference between a pro and, an, and not. And, 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 and here's the, and here's the paradox. Intention is the magic. <laughs> yeah. Within intention is freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Convention intention is freedom. That's a, that's an amazing artistic thing to think about. Until it really is. Like I never and I never thought about it that way until we had this conversation. So I love this conversation, brother. Thank you yeah. so Me much. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Good night. Yeah. <laughs> so, guys, if if you want some more of this and to apply that to your songwriting abilities, man, this is an incredible opportunity to do this. Just click the link in the show notes. Reach out to Steve and make it happen, man. This podcast exists because we want you to win. So keep on climbing. And we'll see you at the top.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.